when you're in the process of getting diagnosed, you're just in this tornado of uncertainty and fear and new information and you don't know what you don't know. But knowing that once you get your treatment plan, after you have all of the diagnostics done, was an opportunity for me to catch my breath and feel like, okay, I've got a little bit of a safety net here. So if I, if someone had just told me, hang on until you get your plan and things will start to stabilize at that point, that would have maybe been a little bit of a life preserver at a very chaotic time. Welcome to the RMBC Life Podcast from Share Cancer Support, dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico, and I'm really glad you're here, since no one should face NBC alone. I'm Nancy Roylance, one of the producers on the Our NBC Life team. I've been living with metastatic breast cancer since July 2021, so that makes me newly diagnosed by many definitions. And I'm Ashley Fernandez, Nancy's co-host on this episode. I've been living with metastatic breast cancer since April of 2018. When Ashley and I were thinking about the title for this episode, we wanted it to acknowledge the shock, anger, despair, and tremendous grief that comes along with being diagnosed with this disease. But we also wanted to say that there is life after hearing those words and that it's not easy, but it is possible to ride the emotional roller coaster with a sense of balance, to find resilience, joy, peace, and even hope along the way. Ashley and I sat down with oncology social worker Lisa Petgrave Nelson to get her perspective on the emotional challenges of being newly diagnosed with MBC. Lisa is a licensed master social worker, a certified oncology social worker, a trained end-of-life doula, and an NYU Zelda Foster Leadership Fellow. Currently pursuing her doctorate in social work, she's worked with chronically ill adults for over 20 years in settings that include Emory University Hospital, and Cancer Treatment Centers of America. After our interview with Lisa, we turned it over to an amazing group of newly diagnosed patients. We are so grateful to them for speaking so openly about their own experiences with metastatic breast cancer. And we hope you are as inspired as we are when we heard their stories. The voice you heard at the beginning of the episode belongs to one of those courageous and generous patients. But first, here's our interview with Lisa. We began by asking her to tell us what made her become an oncology social worker. What inspired her to take this particular road? Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure working with Cher, supporting women with metastatic breast cancer, and now to be a guest on this podcast been an oncology social worker for quite a number, probably about 12 to 14 years. I can't remember. It's all becoming a blur now. But I became a social worker because as a teenager, I was going through some challenges with coping and with family challenges back in the late 90s. 
So my mom was like, Lisa, you need to get some help. So she went ahead and she referred me to a social worker in a school, in, in high school. And I think that was the beginning of the seed being planted. She was a Black woman. She was just a wonderful resource in our community that was going through quite a lot of challenges. I grew up in a very tough high school. There was a lot of grief and traumatic things that were going on with us as teenagers, and that affected us. The social worker there was just wonderful. She provided a safe space for us to talk about all the challenges that were happening in our community and really advocated for us. So that was the seed. I started out my undergrad at LaGuardia. I actually wanted to become a gerontologist. And so Adelphi University came to the college for an open house. I learned about the work that they were doing in social work, and I ended up going there, got my bachelor's, my master's, and I've worked in various settings. I went to Atlanta and stayed there for seven years, and that's where I became involved in working with patients with chronic illnesses, which included the nephrology transplant clinic. I was the first social work navigator there. I was given that opportunity to help with ending disparities with minority patients with their waitlisting time. Black and brown transplant patients wait quite a long time compared to their white counterparts for a kidney transplant. Quite a few of these patients, while they were being evaluated for their kidney transplant, found out that they had cancer. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I was there providing support to not only having a chronic illness, but now finding out about a cancer diagnosis. And it was quite overwhelming. And so that just propelled me into doing research and trying to figure out how to support our patients that were struggling with the family dynamics, this new diagnosis, and all the various emotional challenges that come with that diagnosis. And once the study had ended, I ended up going full-time into oncology. I'm so happy that you found your way through all that to what you're doing now. You do a metastatic breast cancer for a Black women support group. How long have you been doing that for Cher? Yeah, so I was given an opportunity with Cher about, it's going on three years now. I can't believe it, it's gone by so quickly. At first, I was a little bit nervous to work with these women and to share their space. But I find the, the relationship and the time that we spend together monthly rewarding and so beautiful. And I hope that they feel the same way too. It's just such a wonderful opportunity to meet with Black women who are struggling with metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. I'm trying to find like adjectives to describe them. I'm getting chills as I think about it. Just resilient, vulnerable, beautiful stories, beautiful lives that they're living and they are just trying to live a good life, right? And we're able to share all the challenges that they grow through, whether it's worrying about who will take care of their children if something happens to them, changing careers, losing careers, losing spouses, losing their autonomy losing friends, but then gaining themselves also, gaining knowledge, gaining peace, reinventing themselves, and just living. It's just phenomenal, the lives that they're leading. And they call in from all over the country, Texas, North Carolina, Atlanta, New York, just being there for each other. And me being a part of that is just such a great experience. Like, I'm about to cry. <laughs> it's just amazing. I participate in one of Cher's support groups. It's how I got hooked up with this podcast. But yeah, it's been so meaningful to be able to be with people who are walking the same walk. Do you think that there are, I don't know, stages is the right word, but if there are phases that people go through in the first couple of years of being diagnosed, 
from the shock and horror of it and then processing? Yeah. So like in social work world, we talk about Kubler-Ross and the stages of grief, right? And there's anger, there's denial, depression, bargaining and acceptance. I think I got all five. I think it varies. First, those stages, they come and it doesn't have to be in that order. The women that get this diagnosis, you can go from just anger. And I see that patients come in, they are pissed off. They are mad. They're angry at you. They're angry at everyone, right? Especially if you have no prior cancer in your family or whatever it is, you're living your life. You feel good. You're doing everything right. You're being healthy. You're jogging. You're walking 13 miles a week. You're doing everything. And then you get this diagnosis. So we can go from that to acceptance. Some people immediately accept it and say, okay, this is what it is. I'm going to go through this. It really varies. Even throughout the continuum of the cancer diagnosis, there are times when you feel depressed. Sometimes you're just like, how can this be happening to me? And you jump back and forth to different stages of grief. When you get this diagnosis, there's a great deal of loss and grief that goes with it. I think it's important to seek help. And I know we'll probably get into that a little bit later, but just just to make sure that you get help as you're going through those different stages, you might not even realize what is the word for all of these emotions that I'm feeling, this anger, this frustration, and wanting to give up. So it's important that once you're diagnosed that you get the help that you need through the support services in your oncology center to make sure that you can say, there's a reason why I'm feeling all of this and to validate and to normalize what you're going through. Lisa, thank you for saying that because every single emotion you just discussed, I have felt over the last five years of living with this. I also want to ask you as a young Latinx and Black woman, I'd like to know Are there any challenges or concerns when it comes to this cancer diagnosis with younger patients? First, there's a lot of stigma with going to the doctors within African-American communities, Black and brown communities. We don't really follow up, even myself. I think that we have to make sure that we're following up with our healthcare, going for appointments, getting our breast examinations, our colonoscopies. So that's one thing making sure that we're following up with care. There's disparities with health insurance coverages, making sure that we do have health insurance, whether it's looking through the marketplace, whether it's our private insurance, whether it's through Medicaid, whatever insurance you have, following up with your yearly examinations. Sadly, in our communities, there's still a level of secrecy and we don't really talk about our family, our health issues that we had. It's usually looked at as taboo or not staying in a child's place or wanting to know too much information. We don't hear that great grandma had a cancer diagnosis, which you may be predisposed to. I know families that are piecing their ancestry together because they don't know what their family's health conditions were. And so it's important that we have those conversations with our children. I speak very openly with my mother. What was her mother? What was her grandmother like? Who had what? So we have to break that barrier down too, to to speak openly about some of our challenges that we've had, whether it's our health or whether it's our even mental health, right? Yes, yes. I love that you're saying all of this because for myself, my mother had me young, so I don't know my father. I don't know anything on that side. And then it turns out that I did have a genetic mutation. So even though my mother's family had no history, because I don't know my father or anything of that family history, 
It's just so difficult. So I love that you're saying that people are piecing it together and making sure and encouraging that we dig into our histories and try to find and learn as much as possible. Absolutely. And it's very challenging. I think a lot of us are faced with that. I didn't grow up with my dad. And you're right. You don't know what his mother or his grandmother had. Sadly, our mothers or whoever's raised us may not know. But I think for those who do know and those who are around, they should be knowledgeable about their parents' health history, especially as it relates to cancer. So Lisa, how are the challenges and concerns different for younger patients and older patients? I think that it's challenging for anyone, but for those who are under 40, they face a unique set of challenges. At that age, you're getting ready to fly the nest or fly the coop as a young person and wanting to assert your independence. You are also dealing with fertility challenges, right? Oh my goodness, can I have children? I met this young Black woman the other day who went in and she found out that she had ovarian cancer that had metastasized. And she's young. She's like 25. She had to go in and remove all of her reproductive organs. And so here she is at 25 years old. That's not an option for her. And so that's very overwhelming and challenging. So you're dealing with dating. Should I tell this new guy that I'm dating that I met on whatever app or in the mall that I have cancer? Should I disclose that information? What does that look like for me as far as intimacy? Where is this relationship will go? All of those things. Finishing up school, your career. We go to college. You spend all this money. You're going into college. Can I have a career? Can I have this? Can I go through with school? Will that go around my chemotherapy regimen? It's quite overwhelming. And those are unique challenges to the AYA communities. That is that along with parenting and just navigating just this diagnosis. So what kind of special support can you offer or can an oncology social work offer? I just want to add to that the older person that is diagnosed, if it's a middle-aged woman or man, you work, you put your time in, you want to see your grandchildren, you want to retire. We work to retire. I had a patient recently who said, I saved and I did all these things and worked. And she goes, now look at me. I can't even travel. I can't do anything. What did I save for? What did I do any of this for? They're now at the other end of the spectrum, wanting to retire, complete their careers. They've raised their children. They're ready to go on this other side. We all look forward to it. Unfortunately, when you have a cancer diagnosis, those are the things that are like, you're on the opposite ends of the spectrum. As far as My role or the role of the social worker in the clinic, it's really to support that transition and to, again, normalize what the person is going through, being there for them to be a sounding board and helping them with coping strategies. We're all faced with our mortality, right? I think we are in a culture that we believe we're going to live forever and we're not. And so it's important to look at that and discuss that with the patient You want to have hope and to establish goals of care. What is important to you now at 35 with a metastatic breast cancer diagnosis? What can I do to support you in living your life? Is it making sure that things are set in place for your children? Is it supporting you and your spouse? All of those things. What can I do to bridge that gap between you and your family members, right? We're given coping strategies. We're hooking you up with resources. We're living in a society now where... 
people have struggled with food insecurities. I have homeless patients now in Long Island. You'd never think that. Like you have a homeless person living in her car, coming to the clinic, getting treatment. And so how do we help with alleviating some of those barriers? Medication management, speaking to the psychiatrist, helping to advocate for our patients and giving them concrete resources and also setting them up or referring them to organizations that can support them, whether it's with concrete services or emotional or services for their children. We have resources for people with younger children and even the older children. So that's where we come in. That's where the social workers come in and your oncology team. What are some of the coping strategies that you think are effective? I know everybody is individual, depends on what you're going through, but are there any particular resources or strategies that you find helpful spiritually or psychologically or in any other way? There's a wealth of information and organizations that are out there. And so it's important to to reach out to all of those. Cancer Care, which is a really great organization that supports patients across the continuum. They're providing resources in the community for handling stress and talking to your oncology team because there are also cultural issues with that too. How do you let people know what you want we can work with you to help with managing not only your personal life and your family life, but also the other layer of speaking with your oncology team and telling them what you want. So we have Cancer Care. SHARE is also a great organization, as you guys know, that support women with metastatic breast cancer or all female cancers. We can find resources on Instagram and on Facebook. As far as coping strategies, making sure that you are keeping the lines of communication so you are able to speak openly with your family. And again, the social worker can help with facilitating that just to go through some of those communication barriers because sometimes it's hard to tell your husband or your spouse or your partner that you're not going to be able to be there for them in the way that we had before, that you're not going to be able to follow through on some of those roles and responsibilities that you had, even as a parent right? There's a reversal of roles. So it's important to just having those lines of communication open. Maintaining a healthy lifestyle. I noticed that even my group two people are eating differently. They are exercising. They are getting rest. Rest is so important. We're trying to pull back away from this go get a mentality and working all the time. It's not a badge of honor. It's crazy. Like you have to take our time and rest and participate in activities. A lot of cancer centers now are offering yoga and chair yoga if you can't do regular yoga stances, meditation. I think a lot of faith-based organizations too, a lot of our cancer patients look to a higher power to cope and deal with a cancer diagnosis. Another coping strategy could be even just reviewing your goals and priorities, right? How am I going to cope with this? What am I going to prioritize? What am I going to do? What does this look like now? And maintaining that lifestyle, whatever that lifestyle, because just like all of you here, you're still living full lives. Mortality, yes, like even for myself is back there somewhere, but it's not at the front part. It's not like right there every day. And we're faced with it every day. What if something could happen? But we know that we kind of silence that voice of fear. And I'm speaking for myself too. I have to silence that and say, I'm going to live. I'm going to do the best I can today. I see you nodding your head. (laughs) 
Oh, yeah, because you are speaking my language. I wake up every day and give myself some affirmations like, what am I going to do? I can handle this today. I love everything that you're saying. And as you were talking about the roles that social oncology social worker does, how do people find an oncology social worker? I don't see that at my cancer center. Yeah, I've heard that too. I recently went to a cancer symposium and I was shocked to hear that like some of the centers didn't have oncology social workers. I was so shocked. I was like, how is that possible? Because you need a social worker there. So many things varies, right? If you're, are you in a rural area? Are you someplace where staff has been cut and you don't have someone, a social worker there? Maybe there's a case manager or nurse navigator looking out again to cancer care. I work with them a lot because they offer oncology social workers, cancercare.org. They have social workers throughout the country where you can call in from wherever you are and speak to an oncology social worker. I think they give you like a free 12 sessions of counseling and they can connect you with social workers if you don't have one in the specific cancer center that you're getting treatment. Cancer care is a great place to start. That sounds great. And I wonder if maybe they could connect you with what that role is at your specific place. If it's a similar role, but maybe a different name in the organization. Absolutely. Is a nurse navigator or a navigator? You wouldn't have a nurse do a social worker's job. There is definitely some unique characteristics to being a social worker, but maybe they have someone from palliative care. Just look in the department and ask your oncology team. I always say ask. Just speak up and ask. I would ask and say, do you have a social worker? How do I speak to a social worker? Maybe they have a case manager who's not a social worker, but the background that they have, they can provide you the support that you need. So I wondered, since you lead a support group with SHARE, where do you see those fitting into sort of the mix of supportive resources? Support groups are very important. They could be a great benefit to cancer patients or in any group setting, right, for whatever struggles we're going through. As human beings, we gravitate to those who are similar to us, who have shared the same experiences. And so it's important to have that camaraderie, that support. And the support group that I have now, a lot of these women, they've even exchanged numbers. They're looking to meet each other at different cancer forums. They're being advocates for each other. And so they reach out and they really connect with each other outside of the group, which is great as well. So I think that's a great way to cope with a cancer diagnosis and to have someone walking with you. I think it's sometimes it's a little bit easier for people to speak with someone outside of their family members because you can connect and say, girl, I am so tired. I just don't know what to do. You're able to have that camaraderie and that support from your fellow group member. We do have to make sure that we're discussing the rules of the support group because it can be overwhelming. I've heard patients talk about going into a cancer support group and just being turned off. It's like being at our tables for Thanksgiving. There's one uncle or auntie that monopolizes the conversation. And so we need to make sure that we understand the rules of the support groups and the mission, why are we here, right? We're supposed to support each other, especially with cancer. We don't want to give misinformation. We want to make sure that the information that our fellow participants that they're getting that is reputable, But I think in the grand scheme of things, support groups are really a great resource for people to connect. Honestly, like my cancer support groups have been life-saving for me. It changed my whole way of thinking when I found somebody else that I could connect with. We were talking about this earlier, ladies, that just understands you 
and what you're going through. You don't have to explain it. You can just share that talk and hold space for each other and with each other and do life together. And it seems like you just help facilitate that and give us coping mechanisms, which are really speaking to my soul. I'm happy to hear that. I'm happy to be a part of that. And I think when you open up that space and let people in, and these women are just like the support groups I'm sure that you guys are in or are familiar with, but from different walks of life. And here you are, cancer is no respective of person, color, race, financial status. I think you're just on the same level, whether you're feeling pain, you feel like you're being pulled in all these different directions with caring for your husband, your children, your partner, your work. Yeah, I agree so strongly. And I think that for me, it's really important that I'm in a metastatic group because when you're in a group that's more mixed and you've got some people who are stage one, if you have metastatic cancer, you really don't want to overload these folks with this could happen. So it meant a lot to me to be able to be with people who you can say whatever. There's no holds barred. Whatever crap you're dealing with, physically, emotionally, whatever, it's okay because there are people in this room who really can hold that space. And you have different needs than someone who's probably just getting started on their cancer journey and it's not metastatic. So it's important to have those people that are in the same diagnosis pot per se. Everyone talks about that fear of dying, but I think as an MBC group, that's a real issue. That's a real topic. That's something that is relevant to that group. And so you want to discuss those fears, you want to express your needs and your preferences and what does this look like? And maybe that would be too overwhelming for someone with a stage one diagnosis. You do better with patients who are also diagnosed with that exact diagnosis. Lisa, I have a question from a patient. How do you cope with loss, like the loss of health, work affiliations, the ability to do things in your life that you can no longer do? Like, how would you help someone cope with loss? Yeah. The grief of a cancer diagnosis is overwhelming and it just, it pulls at every part of your life. I think the loss is, it's a matter of acknowledging that you're losing these things, right? It's normal. You're going to acknowledge it and say, yes, this is a loss for me. I'm not going to be able to work the way that I wanted to work. Many people, they had all these different plans and step-by-step, especially as women, women are like, I'm going to get married at 25 or 30 and blah, 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 blah. I'm going to finish up college. I'm going to do this. I'll be retired by such and such. We have our whole lives planned. Like me, I'll be in Jamaica at 65, just like living it up. Yes, I totally understand what you're saying. I had those plans and I got cancer at 30. Yes, absolutely. So I think that it's important to acknowledge, yes, there are losses. This is a lot for me. But in addition to that, being patient with yourself, right? And saying, yes, this is a loss. But what else? What can I do now that I'm here? And sometimes we have to be creative and sometimes you may not have the strength, the bandwidth. It won't go step by step. You may grieve for a year, two, three, and it's the same whether it's loss of your breast, the loss of the person, everything, right? It includes all of that. So it's once acknowledging and saying, yes, I've made the loss, being patient with yourself, Let your grief happen. It's okay. And you can't judge yourself or compare yourself to the other cancer patient because your journey is going to be totally different than theirs. And I see you're clapping. What do you have to say? 
Oh, I was just saying, yes, yes, because it's completely true. There's no right, wrong, good, bad way to have cancer, right? right like right. this is just the poopy diagnosis that we have and we have to figure out what's best for us absolutely to work through it. So I love exactly what you're saying. And I think it's really going to hit with some of our listeners as well. When I was first diagnosed, just making a list of all my losses was so therapeutic, like physically really? writing it down. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Even though I felt a little crazy doing it, was it just put it outside of my body. <laughs> no, that's amazing. I think to write all those things down. And once you wrote them down, how did you find that therapeutic? You wrote it down, but what came after? I could just look at them from the outside and be mm-hmm. like, I can still be myself, live mm-hmm. my life. It just made a huge difference for me. Sometimes those losses are just like anything, right? I think they're all up here. And when you put them down on paper, then you're like, okay, yes, you can check them off. And then you'll say, all right, even though that's a loss, how can I regain some of those things? I think that sometimes those losses become lessons. And I think it's just a matter of taking care of yourself. I always talk about quality of life for patients because that changes too. Your role change, your life change, and it will take you a while to accept the changes. That's where the social worker and your family and your caregivers, that's where they are to be working with you for you to see that light to say, you know what? Yes, I have cancer, but I am going to be doing this now. I recently had a patient who was a physician and she retired. You can tell that was a lot for her. She enjoyed her work in oncology, and so she got diagnosed with cancer. And she had to leave her job because of her diagnosis and her treatment regimen and not being able to work and have chemo and all of that. And a year and a half later, she informed us that she was going to return to work soon. Here she is in a space where she thought that she would never be able to work again because of this diagnosis and with the support from the group, from her family, and her learning to be patient with herself and to stay connected with that person inside that she lost, here she is now reinventing herself and saying, you know what, I'm going to go back in there because despite this diagnosis, I can support women like me, you know, and patients like myself to get through this. And what a story she has now. Outside of that despair and that darkness, here she is with this new lease on life. And despite an MBC diagnosis, she's living her life and will be helping others also. I can relate. I worked through stage one. I worked through stage three. When I got stage four and it was the middle of or the end of COVID experience, I was like, I can't work now, mostly because I couldn't deal with the cumulative stress of it. It was just too much to be working remotely, trying to figure out treatment, trying to navigate healthcare after COVID. You realize how much of your identity is bound up in what you were doing every day. And I didn't have children. So it has been profoundly meaningful for me to be able to volunteer with Cher and volunteer with my colleagues here working on this podcast and hopefully other podcasts just to really feel like I'm doing something meaningful. Absolutely. It feels like a legacy, really, our podcast. Absolutely. And I say that it's funny that you brought that up because I bring up that word a lot. It's wonderful that you're able to volunteer that you're able to give back because as human beings, it's innate. We want to feel purposeful. We want to do something. I'm always fascinated by people's ability to even give more. Initially, you probably felt like just being in a cocoon and hiding yourself from all of this. 
But now you start to just ease out and even share your story. It's amazing. And it is a legacy. Thank you for giving us your lunch hour and just being a part of our podcast. We're really appreciative. This has been a wonderful conversation and I'm so grateful. Thank you guys so much. In this next section, you will hear directly from some courageous and generous women who are also recently diagnosed with MBC. Some took part in a recent panel discussion. And thanks to the miracle of podcast technology, we were also able to incorporate another voice. Ashley and I are so grateful to each of them for bringing the patient voice to this episode. This is so amazing, guys. Thank you for taking time out this evening to be with Nancy and I to discuss this super important topic and just shine light on it. We're so thankful. I would love it if anybody is willing to share their diagnosis story or their experience. I'm Sue. I was diagnosed stage two in 2018 and was actually misdiagnosed with IDC. It wasn't until I was in treatment in 2019 after my surgery that they correctly diagnosed me with labular breast cancer. So that was a little bit of a surprise. And I got my metastatic labular breast cancer diagnosis about nine months ago. I was having symptoms. And so my then oncologist ordered a bone scan and nothing was showing up. And she referred me to an orthopedic surgeon. I got connected with an oncology orthopedic surgeon which I think was just a stroke of luck. And she was doing some workups and something showed on an MRI. She said, oh, let's just wait six months. And I said, I'm not too keen on this waiting business. So we negotiated down to five months. Long story short, went back for a repeat MRI and it had doubled in size. And she ordered a PET scan. And it was the report from the PET scan that I read that I realized what I was fearing was becoming a reality. So she ordered a a biopsy. And again, I read the report from the biopsy before I had my official debrief appointment with her where she said the words. And I, I needed to hear the words just to confirm my suspicions and my educated guesses from reading the reports. It was still quite a surprise, no matter how much lead up you have and how much of a suspicion you have. At least for me, it was still a gobsmack. So I'm Stephanie. It's been three months since getting diagnosed. I was first diagnosed with breast cancer in 2020 in the middle of the pandemic. I was only stage one. I always say I'm not supposed to be here, but yet I am. I had a lumpectomy. I didn't even need chemotherapy because my oncotype was really low. I did radiation. I was on tamoxifen. The end of last year, actually, I got re-diagnosed that my cancer was back three days before I turned 41. For me, this is still raw and a little hard to talk about. I was going in every six months for checkups and in one of my six months mammograms and ultrasound. The doctor saw something that they thought could be potentially recurrence. So she immediately did another biopsy, literally the Friday before my birthday. She called to tell me that he was back. And standard of care was to get a CT scan. I went in for a CT scan in the morning. 
And they were calling me back on the same day and I freaked out. Oh my God, they found something because why would they call me right away? The oncologist spent 10 minutes describing to me all the things they found on the report. And he was like, we found something on your lungs and we don't know what it is. We're sending you to get a biopsy. I was like, okay, had to go back to work, went to another meeting. And after that, I was like trying to process it. And throughout that week, I just couldn't sleep. I would wake up in the middle of the night. All I can think about is cancer. And on Saturday, my boyfriend was over and it was the middle of the night. And I woke up and went back into the portal to read the report again, the CT scan. And that's when I read there were um, nodules in the lungs that were a sign of metastatic disease. So I started to research what does it mean to have metastatic breast cancer? So I remember just being like four o'clock in the morning when after doing research and going into the American Cancer Society, understanding what it meant, it dawned on me. I did a biopsy right before Thanksgiving and then my lung collapsed. I spent two days in an emergency room. The biopsy said that it was metastatic breast cancer. And by then I already knew I was ready to prepare for that. It wasn't like shocking. I was crying because obviously what you go through this process is grief. But I just felt, I feel like I should have been better prepared for this. If you saw this on my CT scan, you could have told me it's looking like it could be metastatic breast cancer and that's what that means. Or it could be lung cancer and this is what that means. I shouldn't have figured this out at four o'clock in the morning by researching all of this. That was my journey to, to getting here. So my name is Michelle on September 21st, 2020, I was told that I have breast cancer. So getting those words, I went through treatment, had complications, emergency surgeries, a whole year back and forth of having chemo being delayed and had my right breast removed. And then I thought I was in remission. I had no evidence of disease, thought I was starting to rebuild my life back up. Also during that time, I lost my dad. And at the time, just finished treatment. But I'm a daddy's girl. So when my dad got sick, all of that went to the back burner. And I stepped in the role of being the parent and making sure that he was comfortable. He had everything he needed and being a leader in a sense. But what I realized is that when you kind of put your emotions on the back burner and don't deal with them, they have a tendency to come out. After my dad died, I started having anxiety attacks to the point where they were so scary I was going to the emergency room. It didn't make any sense. I'll be home and I'll get up in the room and just spin. I feel like I'm having a heart attack. And it got to the point where I was having these attacks frequently. So I went to the emergency room a couple of times a week and they would do an EKG and just say, you are having palpitations, but we don't see anything with your heart. But they ran tests with an x-ray and CAT scan. They saw my lymph nodes blew up. And that then proceeded to a PET scan. Then that proceeded to biopsies. And then the conversation is, oh, it looks like one of your nodules in your lymph nodes shows positive for cancer. But you also have lymph nodes in your chest and in your lung that look suspicious. In October, my husband got the call. From the very beginning, my doctor knew there's certain things I can handle and certain things I can't. I always told him, if you got bad news to tell me, tell my husband first because he knows how to break it down to me and talk to me in a way where I'm not on edge. So my husband comes home early from work. He got the phone call, but unfortunately, I already saw the report. on my portal. And I already saw that it was stage four. And I looked at it, shut it down and just act like I didn't see it. He came home and he's like looking at me and I'm like, you good? And he's like, no, I'm not good. 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, I saw the report. I have stage four. And he's like, you knew this already? You didn't say anything? Because he was preparing himself to have that conversation. And I already knew. He had set up an appointment for me the very next day at 8 o'clock in the morning. And hearing you have stage four at 39 and you just had cancer at 36 and not having a break meant that some things you have to accept and say, Maybe this cancer is moving faster than I expect it to. Maybe there's something happening with my body that I can't control. What am I going to do about it? Am I just going to settle and allow it to take control of my life? Or am I going to show up for as long as I can? My name is Jean Mayer. My experience was that my lymph nodes were growing and they getting very large. And I actually gone to urgent care and urgent care dropped the ball. And it looks like an infection, but no, it might not be. We should probably get you in. And then she said my insurance wasn't good enough and she couldn't get me in. And then I tried my GP and my GP was going to see me in a week. Luckily, my allergist is an immunologist and an excellent doctor. And I went and I showed her and she said, whoa, you're going in like now. And she was able to get me an appointment in 24 hours. And the radiologist actually called her at 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night, the day the tests were done, and said, whatever this is, it's grown really quickly. We better do something. I had to wait for many weeks for a bone scan and I had a CT scan. One of my brothers had a connection at Mount Sinai, and they wanted me to go there for a consult too because they thought that connection would make a difference. And an oncologist who cheated my dad for pancreatic cancer thought highly of the doctor there. So we went there and by then the bone scan results came in and I was immediately at stage four. It's everywhere. Arms, legs, ribs, spinal cord. I'm glad that I didn't really fully fathom how much it impacted the bones until afterwards. I knew something was funny when they finished the bone scan and the guy kept saying to me, do you want to sit down? Are you okay? You could see he was kind of shocked by what he saw, which was scary. But apparently I had fractured ribs and I was wondering why I had so much pain. I was so shocked. I almost wish, like I cried a little bit at one point, but I was just numb mostly. It was just too hard to fathom. And then when one of my brothers started to cry, that was really hard. I almost felt like worse for him than for me, just because I wasn't really fully metabolizing it. And maybe that's a blessing, because whenever I get really close to it, it's pretty scary. I do want to say for everybody here, I did find research about people that have lived 18 years with metastatic cancer. And one of the things that's been so hard for me is people focusing on, oh, look, the statistics are really bad. You're probably going to be gone in three years. And this is terrifying. And the bottom line is that there are dramatic exceptions. People live long lives and treatment has come a long way and it's ever evolving. Thank you. And I love what you said about how you found somebody that had metastatic cancer past the five years, past the 10 years. When I was first diagnosed in 2018, that's all I did. I stood on the computer looking for anybody that looked like me, anybody that was young, that had like more than 10 years. I had a two and a half year old and I felt, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? When I was researching, the lady I found was at that point, 16 years. And right now she just celebrated 23 years and I met her in real life. 
I just like that. It's important to keep the hope. And it's so hard with this diagnosis to stay hopeful, but then become a realist. That's what I had a hard time with being newly diagnosed. I was diagnosed de novo. So I have no family history of breast cancer, nothing else. We were living in Alaska. My husband's in the military. I fell down, hurt my rib, and it wasn't healing. Like they couldn't find anything. So that happened in September and I didn't have the breast cancer diagnosis until April. Fast forward, I had a bone scan and I lit up like a Christmas tree. They couldn't understand how I was walking either. So your stories, I found a lot of similarities in ours, John Muir. So thank you for sharing. What are two or three things that you have found most concerning or challenging in terms of your emotional well-being and health living with this diagnosis and just newly diagnosed? A couple of things that come to my mind, and this is from the experience I had with my old oncologists, the lack of available resources, both from the provider perspective, as well as the payer, the insurance companies, woefully inadequate. At least that was my experience. On the flip side of that, I got really lucky that my new oncologist has a stellar team that have resources from all different perspectives. They have an oncology social worker, a nutritionist. They have support groups that are well facilitated. And I tapped into some nonprofits, including SHARE. So I kind of compare sort of the old oncology experience versus what I embarked on as soon as I knew I was going through an MBC diagnosis. And another thing that was a little challenging was getting the physical symptoms under control. When you're dealing with pain and nausea and just sickness, it's hard to be able to take care of anything else. And luckily the new oncologist was right on that. I think she's got a palliative medicine background or something because she and her team were all over that. And so once we got some of those physical symptoms under control, it was really helpful to allow me just the space to be able to manage some of the other more emotional consequences. I would agree with what Sue said. Moving from the first clinic to MSK was, I think, a really good decision for me. I realized I need more support. I definitely struggled in the beginning with identifying what I was dealing with was grief and not depression because it was a weird situation. Like, you're so sad. Like, you're always crying. But it's not depression because you don't want to die. You actually want to live. You're crying because you want to live. After some self-reflection and some reading and some mindfulness, I came to realization. I am actually grieving, but I also need mental health care. And MSK had all those resources. Therapist. I have a nutritionist. I was like, please put me in touch with a nutritionist. I need a nutritionist. ASAP. It felt like such an important part of care to be eating well. And then... My doctor recommended acupuncture, and that's going to help you with some of your symptoms. I was going through a lot of half flashes and aches and pains because I am hormone positive. They cut off my hormones, so I went into chemical menopause. First, you get all of these symptoms, and they're all so intense. And so I think balancing health, but with wellness, right? I am trying to work out more. I have a treadmill at home acupuncture, trying to be mindful, practice mindfulness, meditation, all of that stuff to me has been keen to feeling better. One of the things when I was told that my cancer was now stage four, 
And I told my doctor, I say, my kids are the reason why I don't go walk in traffic. And it's okay to feel that way. I think sometimes we get so guarded and so, oh my God, we don't want people to see us weak or we don't want people to know. You have to release those feelings, whatever those feelings are. Stage one is you're looking at the flight of steps from the bottom and you see all the steps, but you're at the bottom. And now stage four, you're at the top of the steps and the next hanging off the cliff because you know there's nothing behind that. It hits different. So I didn't tell my kids until I had a meeting with my son's school and I had a meeting with my daughter's school. I had a meeting with the guidance counselor. I had a meeting with the principal. And I let them know, this is what's happening in my household. This is what's going to affect my children. And it's going to be different. It's going to be hard. So we have to work as a village to make sure that they're okay because they're my priority. Yes, I want my kids to be highly educated and school is important. But if you're not mentally there, you ain't going to work. So if I'm here for another year or I'm here for another 30 years, I have to show them what resilience and dedication looks like in any shape, form, or fashion. But I also show them the sad part. I show them the emotional part. I show them the breakdown part because I want them to remember that they are human and they are allowed to make mistakes. They are allowed to have emotions. They are allowed to feel defeated. And in that defeat, get encouragement to get themselves back up and to continue to fight. What about work? Was it hard to decide whether you wanted to continue in your job or take time off or stop working altogether? For me, I ended up retiring, but I was almost 65, so it was a relatively easy choice. But I know for a lot of people, you really can't stop working. I was working when I got diagnosed, and I consider myself very fortunate that my manager and the HR team were so supportive. I couldn't have asked for a better support network. I know that not everybody has similar experiences, but I think being able to take the time off that I needed was huge and giving me more bandwidth to figure out what was going on and do the research I needed to do and just give myself space. Yeah, having the support that I had at work was, I'm so grateful for. I actually, I'm still working full time. Not everybody at work knows. Some people don't. I've decided I'm going to choose who I trust. My apprehension has been because I was on this fast path to become this leader and whatnot. And obviously that has shifted a lot. I didn't tell people what was going on at first, but I was in and out of the hospital, right? First, it was a biopsy, then it was the lung collapse. Once I got diagnosed, work was meaningless, right? Like it meant nothing. It didn't mean anything in the context of everything that was going on. But I would say it has helped me cope because it has helped me keep a routine. So I don't think about being sick all the time because I'm busy thinking about other things and solving problems and doing that and the other. So in that sense, it has helped me. And it's given me the ability to get treatment and have the insurance. And right now I'm looking at this as a means to an end. What's my bucket list? And how can I use the money that I have now to be able to accomplish those things? Because I know that I will go on disability at some point. When that will be, I'm not sure quite yet, but I know that it's that's going to come. 
For myself, I really enjoyed working after my diagnosis. I was 30 and I worked until I was 33, the middle of COVID. I didn't know what was happening and I kept getting really sick. Like my white counts wouldn't last. So my oncologist said it was time. But I ended up filing for medical retirement and I worked a civilian job on base. So it worked out well for me. But now sometimes I miss it. I say I work because I volunteer quite a bit within our community, but sometimes it's not the same because it is cancer related. And when I did that, I was like doing payroll and just making sure people were following their things. So I understand it. It was a good, just a good distraction. What support and resources have you found that are most helpful in dealing with your emotional fallout from this disease? I think you guys have mentioned a couple of them that are top of mind to me, like building a community, especially if you don't have work anymore, that can be a huge source of loss. But having a community, whether it's a support group, I've actually made some really meaningful connections on some closed Facebook groups for Lobular NBC and just knowing that other people can understand what you're going through without having to explain everything is very reassuring. It's a safe community. So that that community is, I think, important. And then in addition to the one-on-one support, whether it's somebody from your provider's office or being able to connect with the metastatic share line is huge. So being able to just have some one-on-one time, I think is also really helpful. I'm a taskmaster. And so being able to kind of get some control back when when you feel like you don't have any control for me was helpful. And so I dove into some of the research and trying to just make some sense of it so I could feel like I had a little bit of control back. I don't think I have the control back, but made me feel like I, I did in a little bit. And then having some purpose, I started doing some advocacy work when I was early stage and I've really continued through that and have taken it in some new directions after the NBC. When you deal with something that makes no sense, like metastatic breast cancer, being able to try to find some sense or some purpose out of it has been helpful. So those are some of the things that were helpful for me. Thank you so much, Sue. I related with a lot of what you mentioned. When you're talking about one-on-one support, something that Stephanie mentioned and I know Ashley and I have talked about this is having a therapist who knows something about oncology and cancer. That's working for me. I'm so grateful, honestly. I love that you mentioned therapy, Nancy. That's my jam. I feel like therapy is well for anyone if you're open to it. It's so important that you have somebody that is oncology focused though, because they know exactly what we're dealing with. I see my therapist every month. I also do a lot of meditation and a lot of writing. And I also just use my story to try to be impactful in any way possible. As soon as I got to MSK, I was like, let me get all the things that they offer to all the patients. I was like, I want it all. (laughs) I want the the whole thing. And so they had a patient-to-patient program when I first got diagnosed. I needed to get perspective because it's very easy to like get in your head and thinking, okay, well, I'm dying. Yes, we're dying, right? But I'm not going to die tomorrow. This peer-to-peer program has been really great because it put me in contact with somebody exactly like my mirror image, working in the corporate world, climbing the corporate ladder, same situation. She was single and she was diagnosed only maybe I think five years or six years, something like that before I was. 
So she was like me, like six or seven years into the future. And I, the sudden I could just see myself, I was like, okay, this is not the end, right? And so that gave me a lot of hope, it gave me perspective. And then she's like, I'm here. So you reach out to whenever you want. She also told me all about disability. And whenever you're ready, I think that's a good route to go. There's something wrong with that. You can live your best life the way you want to. When I got diagnosed, what I said to myself is, I need a wall of people around me. And I need a people who I know I trust and care about me who are going to be there. If I falter, they're going to catch me. So that's why I told my closest friends, my aunt who has gone through not breast cancer, but she had other types of cancer. And then looking for all of these resources and I was down for all of it. Acupuncture, meditation. I've been reading memoirs of people who've had cancer, just trying to understand and comprehend a lot of bit of the thinking and the emotional things that go into this. How do you persevere when you are facing these challenges? To me, is something that's been this mystery that I've been trying to solve. Thank you so much, Stephanie. I do love that you were connected to peer-to-peer from the beginning. I had to look all over Facebook to find somebody to connect with. What about you, John Mayer? Would you like to share? Sure. Walks have helped me, although I don't walk far. A lot of times I make it like five blocks. <laughs> Maybe once a week I make it 10. And been pretty fortunate in that my brothers, my mom, my friends in general, just everybody is pretty supportive. But I only really talk to people who can go with the cue of a balance, which is if I'm frightened about something, we can go over it, but I don't want to always be focusing on the worst possibilities. And I had a friend who, every time I talked to her, I felt like I was reassuring her. And I can't be focusing on the worst parts of this all the time. That's really not going to help me to cope. The people that I'm close to have been a little bit better at it. This is what we know so far. Now we need to get back and focus on the positive. I can't stay here. It took a while for my mom to be able to do that. One of my friends to be able to do that. And, um, And then they started going with my cue because part of this is the emotional mental battle, right? About keeping your whole system okay and hopeful. Working with people that can have that conversation about what's constructive is really helpful to me. I love how you put that boundary up. Like you protected yourself within a boundary of, hey, yes, I want to be there for you, but this is what I need for me. I didn't know that newly diagnosed. So thank you for sharing, John Mayer. I think I had the opposite problem because I feel people in my life are overly optimistic. People don't understand what it means fully. And my boyfriend is, yes, we're going to live and we're going to retire. I'm like, no, that's not what's going to happen. I don't get to live for 40 years. You have to have a hope, but you also have to be realistic. It's been like the struggle that I've had also with people. And I got my PET scan and it's just, oh, it's great. The treatment is working. The tumors slightly decrease, which is great news. And everybody's like, oh my God, that's amazing. And I'm like, yes, I'm never going to reach remission. There's no such thing, right? I had to explain to people and with this disease, there's no cure, right? We're just living with it. And so it's been the opposite for me. It's just like setting people's expectations, still being hopeful, like I'm going to be here for a long time. Although we don't own the future is one of the things I had to learn. Nobody knows what's going to happen tomorrow. But I know that I don't get to reach 65 and retire and have that life. That's not on the cards for me. Yeah, it's like a balancing scale. 
The next voice you will hear belongs to Victoria Goldberg. Victoria is one of the founders of Our NBC Life and our fearless leader, mentor, and all-around podcast superwoman. She popped in for a surprise visit during our panel discussion, an unexpected bonus for our panel and for our listeners. Here's Victoria. wanted to jump in and ask one question. Oh, go ahead, Victoria. We love your voice. It's very hard to just sit and not talk. I know Stephanie mentioned something interesting, which I did not know about MSK, that they have this patient-to-patient. So I'm assuming it's a peer program, right? So they match you with a peer. But I'm also wondering what you guys think about support groups for newly diagnosed. Do you feel that this is something that is helpful The reason I wanted to join a support group, I need a perspective because it can be very isolating and you can just think the worst of things and not know what are the possibilities of how people are living with the disease. I also found support group to be very intimidating because I am new. I don't speak the lingo. I don't know some of these acronyms. I know some people, when they get diagnosed, they get so into the research, understanding every single thing, the in and outs, all the science of cancer. I have not been that person. And so to me, it's been a little intimidating to be sitting in a room with people who've been living with this for so long. And and then they say like things like, I don't know, things I can't even pronounce. There's a learning curve there for me. But last week we were in the support group and we had this woman who had been living with it for over a decade. And I was just like, wow, that's amazing to see somebody. And from what I saw, I was on video. She's relatively well and she's living her life. And that's so great. So that's that. But I also get very sensitive. Last time I was on it, there was a lot of conversations about how to tell your kids. I don't have kids, but I just wanted to sit there and cry. And I was holding myself back not to cry because I just felt this is hard. This is a hard conversation. I had the same feeling as you, Stephanie. Even now, I've been living with this for almost five years on Thursday, and I still don't speak the lingo. And sometimes I'll be on the calls, like I listen to some of our episodes myself, and I'm like, oh, I learned so much today. Like I told you before, there's no right or wrong way to do this. And it seems like you're educating yourself on different ways. You're educating yourself on integrative medicine. You're educating yourself on alternatives. So you bring something to the support group. You're just not there yet to be able to share it, but you're soaking up a wealth of knowledge that once you're ready, you're going to be able to share with others. So I just wanted to pour that into you really quickly. You said something about children. I have a hard time with mixed age groups sometimes because when I was first diagnosed, I was 30. Everybody in my support group that was metastatic was over 60. There was only four of us. And it was hard because they were like coping the loss of seeing their grandchildren grow up. And I was here with a two-year-old just trying to figure out like, how am I going to take her to school if my husband gets deployed? What am I going to do? How does that look for me? So I can understand how it is intimidating. And then when I finally had the courage to say, hey guys, I'm sad because of this. They were like, oh my gosh, they didn't even think it because we were just all sharing. But what I love about our groups and all the groups that I've ever been a part of is you can come as raw as real as you are. And in that moment, if you were like, hey, I feel like this because I didn't have a kid or I don't have this moment and I'm grieving this loss with this ambiguous grief. We are such a loving people that someone would come and scoop you up 
even if it was on the internet, like send a little message like, hey, I just want to let you know that I hear you. Like, it's okay. So have you said that? Because that's exactly how I feel about support groups, that it's best. This is what you get out of them. You get out of them this loving community, very supportive community. But of course, it comes with a price. So Facebook groups for me have been the best source of support personally. With the military, we move everywhere. So I just moved to North Carolina. I still haven't made any friends. Thankfully, online, every Monday I get to see friends. I know that I'm connected to somebody. Like those Facebook groups to me are everything. At first, I got a little scared. I don't know if you guys have experienced that a little Mm -hmm. bit, or sometimes you see a little bit of deaths or that someone's passed. And that for me was a little scary at first. And then I realized like, hey, that's part of this. I still want to get to know people. I still want to be connected. I still want to be with people that get me. No matter where I go in this world, wherever the military sends us, I want to know that I have friends online. I guess beyond the idea of somebody dying from the group, sometimes what I have a hard time with is when somebody's doing a lot worse that was fine. And then they're really sick in the group or you find out they had metastasis to the brain or the liver. And so sometimes I doing fine. And then I hear somebody with that situation. And to be honest, sometimes I, I'm like, okay, I think I need a week away because I, it, it's the hard part. You want to be there for each other. And yet when you're aware that somebody's suffering like that and that it's getting worse, especially when you saw that they were doing well, I find that one of the tough challenges that I guess just inevitably is going to come with the support group about this. Yeah. I think we had a similar something happen in my support group again, maybe a month ago. And after we ended the call, I had to step away and just go scream. I just cursed. I was like, all the expletives, right? Like I just needed to do that um, to get that out. Cause I was like, it's so good to see people doing well, but at the same time, it's really hits you when somebody's not doing so great. That is a decision that every one of us has to make. When we enter this world of metastatic breast cancer, we all have to decide whether we're open to relationships and making friends. But there is a flip side to that, right? There is death and you'll be losing friends. Our podcast was founded by a friend of mine, very close friend of mine, Lisa Laudico, who is no longer with us. And it was very hard because I've lived with this for so many years. I have lost so many friends. But at the same time, I've also made so many friends. And friendships that you make in this community are the most lasting ones, honestly, because we know we don't have time for bullshit. We know that this bond that we have may not last very long. And somehow, maybe subconsciously, We open our hearts to these friendships and they're very important. This is the last thing I'm going to say because I have to make a plug for the podcast. I think our podcast is another way of opening our community up. We try to do many things and we also try to hear people from different walks of life. So we have young women. We had a lot of parenting episodes. We're doing one episode this season. Ashley, in fact, is doing it, living alone with NBC. And 
this one is part of a two-part series for the newly diagnosed. And what I'm hearing from Stephanie is that you need somebody to tell you what NAD is, what stable disease is, what all those shortcuts that everybody is using, which is normal, like in every profession, everybody has their own lingo. And you got to get used to that lingo. This discussion became like a little group today. And that we were all able just to share our stories and keep open hearts for each other. So thank you. Thank you. What were you going to say, Nancy? I was just going to say that if we wanted to briefly touch on our last question, our last question is, what do you know now that you wish you knew at the beginning of your diagnosis with MBC? One thing that I think I learned, and I should have learned this when I was early stage, or maybe I forgot about it, but when you're in the process of getting diagnosed, you're just in this tornado of uncertainty and fear and new information, and you don't know what you don't know. But knowing that once you get your treatment plan, after you have all of the diagnostics done, was an opportunity for me to catch my breath and feel like, okay, I've got a little bit of a safety net here. So if someone had just told me, hang on until you get your plan, things will start to stabilize at that point. That would have maybe been a little bit of a life preserver at a very chaotic time. That is wonderful. So well put. Thank you. I think for me, it would have been that know that you're going to grieve the life that you're not going to, that you thought you're going to live, but you're not going to anymore. It's going to be okay. You're going to come out from this with different perspective. And with a different paradigm in how you look at life. And I think out of this, I say cancer cured my anxiety because I don't get to worry about the future anymore. And now I just get to live more mindfully in the present. And I get to enjoy and be grateful for the small moments of joy. What I know now that I wish I knew before really has nothing to do with cancer. It has to do with myself. In the last three and a half, almost three years, I've tapped into the powers that Michelle has. Cancer wasn't something I signed up for, but it gave me a battery in my back to say, sis, you don't have enough time to waste. You have all of these talents. It's time for you to show up for Michelle. And then showing up for Michelle has opened up a different mindset for myself. I like the person that I've become. I'm happy with the impact that I'm making, the whole picture. And I just, I'm so grateful for the family that God has given me. Because when I get off track and I feel hopeless, they remind me that I have a purpose here. And I'm here for a reason. What suggestions or advice do you have for other newly diagnosed patients? that are just started, if you could tell them one thing, what would it be? I would just say, don't be shy about asking questions. And when you get dissuaded, just come back and try to approach it again. It's the least that I think they can do is to, to try to give you some information to help you with making choices and to have a perspective. And that's your right. And that's empowering. And that's important not to lose that. I would say that that people should know that they will grieve. What they're going to feel is grief. And that's completely normal. Allow yourself to sit with those feelings and really rely on your people, the people around you. 
to just sit there and hold your hand sometimes. I think this might dovetail with what Stephanie was saying. It's okay to feel what you're feeling. And what you're feeling right now is going to possibly be very different than 10 minutes. And it's all real and it's all okay. Exactly. That was beautiful. Ladies, you guys were phenomenal. This has been a great experience. I really appreciate you guys. This is going to be so hard to edit because you guys shared gems Mm -hmm. all night. This is so beautiful. And I know it's really going to touch our community. So thank you all so very much. Nancy, what do you think is the greatest takeaway from speaking with this amazing patient panel? I think there are a lot of takeaways. And one of them is that there is life after this diagnosis. And that's something that it's hard to believe when you first hear those words. I think another important point is you can't anticipate exactly how this is going to unroll for you. And you need to allow yourself the time to process the information and the emotional impact that it has. And I also think it's important to realize that no two patients go through this the same way. It's a very, very individual journey. And I hate to call it a journey, but... No, but I love that. I love that you called it a journey because it's an adventure. And it's not really an adventure that you want to embark on, but it's one that we're each on. So I actually love that you called it a journey. Above all, the most important thing that I want listeners to take away from this podcast is that as a newly diagnosed patient struggling with MBC, you are not alone. There's a lot of support, women and men, ready, as Ashley said, to scoop you up. And what did you say? Usually I just say, I'll scoop you up. I'll love on you and walk with you along the way. Because I think so much you feel alone and you're just looking for connection. And there's connection everywhere for each one of us. We just really have to put ourselves out there. And that's a hard first step. Before we sign off, I want to give special thanks to Martha Carlson for all of her work with us. And you heard her voice in a few places along the way. She is the lead producer on the next episode focused on newly diagnosed patients, which will give you more of the MBC 101 nuts and bolts of how to deal with this disease from a medical perspective, what to ask your doctor, what are all those alphabet soup things that you hear from your doctor. And I also want to let you know that we're thrilled to be able to add an interview from Michelle, who you heard in the patient panel. We have a full interview with Michelle, a trailblazer interview, and that will be posted in a couple of weeks. Nancy, I really want to thank you. Well, I I want to thank you. It's been a wonderful experience working with you. This episode was produced by Ashley Fernandez and me, Nancy Roylance. Original music and sound designed by associate producer Connor Kinsley. Many thanks to Martha Carlson for partnering with us in this three-part series. And to Miranda Gonzalez, for her steady hand, and for the introduction to Michelle. The executive producer is Christine Benjamin, Vice President of Patient Support and Education at Share Cancer Support. Please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. Check out the blog and full episode notes at ourmbclife.org. And follow us on Facebook, 
Twitter, and Instagram at OurNBCLife.